this morning. We'll see what we have for us. Jesus had been up in the very northern part of the country. The Mount of Transfiguration took place actually outside of the northern border of Israel by a small amount where Jesus was transfigured and his, his disciples changed forever. He comes down from the mountain now and he's making his way along the east side of the Jordan River uh, through Gentile territory. Uh, and he's moving towards Jerusalem. We're in a fi the final weeks of Jesus' life now, and there, and there really seems to be a sense of urgency as he, he's a man with a destiny, and he knows that the Son of God must pay the price for all of mankind's sins on the cross, but he won't allow himself to be taken before the perfection of God's time arrives. So he journeys the 65 miles down from Capernaum all the way down to the, the southern end. Uh, there is a large gap of time between Mark chapter 9 and chapter 10, uh, and in fact, several chapters of the Gospel of Luke fit in there. Uh, over six months of narrative is inserted between those two chapters. But then it, it seems like as Jesus is on his way, he is always accosted by people with impure motives. The Pharisees are hounding him like, like coon dogs on a, on a coon that's being treed. Uh, they never give him a break. And so they're always looking at entrapment. Anytime you see the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees talking to Jesus, they have no interest whatsoever in his answer except trying to use his words against him any way they can. They try to twist his words. They want to incriminate him any way that they can at all. I, I love the three vignettes that we have before us here in the opening verses of chapter 10, where Jesus is tested by these Pharisees. The disciples are tested by, believe it or not, little children. And then there's a rich young ruler who is too fond of his money. That the third is the third vignette that we're going to look at this morning. And they touch us all in the society that we live today. Uh, I was talking to Pastor John Mark, who filled the pulpit last week for me. My son Luke is in the hospital. He had emergency uh, spinal cord decompression surgery on his neck. And uh, the, the surgery went wonderfully, and it was conducted by a man who was a, a top-notch specialist. But uh, I asked Luke, I said, I can't bring you to church this morning. Is there anything you want me to tell him? And he said, yeah. Say Hi. He loves you and he misses you. I thought that was sweet of me. He said that several times yesterday. Dad, be sure to tell him as soon as I can get back there, I love him and I miss him. And, and I would just want to thank everyone personally for their prayers. So keep him in your prayers. He, uh, there is a chance that he can come home this coming week. In fact, when I leave here this morning, I'll be headed back to the hospital. And his physical therapy will hopefully be done by then. We can have lunch together. Uh, these are good times where God is glorified. You know, I, it touched my heart when Pups led the church in that song, I Surrender All. I was saved in a Baptist church in Oklahoma City, uh, believe it or not, 50 years ago. That was one of their most popular songs. And as I looked back in remembrance, singing that song in my mind's eye in Oklahoma City, uh, I Surrender All. I, I remember looking around the room wondering, we sing the words, but are we, are we really surrendering anything? Or are we just singing songs? 
And in some circles, you get the impression, you get the feeling, we're, we're just singing songs. We're just getting all of this junk out of the way so we can hear the pastor teach. Instead of entering, the, entering into that place of intimacy, of personal praise and worship, and yes, surrender, it's easier to just sing songs, isn't it? Because if I surrender, I may, I may have tears come to my eyes. I may have to repent of some sins. I, I may drop to my knees. Maybe I'll come down to the altar. May, I don't know, but I'm a little bit afraid of God doing business with me in the public arena. So I'll hold back and I won't surrender all. Oh, I'll sing the words because people will ask me why I didn't sing the words. But in their heart of hearts, some will say, I can't surrender this. When in fact the reality is, I won't surrender this. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. So Jesus touches on three really hot topic uh, issues, starting off with divorce. It was cool when I talked to John Mark, and he said, yeah, I brought you up to the start of, of chapter 10. He says, I thought I'd let you deal with that thing called divorce because I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And the reason there's that reluctance, not only on the part of pastors, but on the part of parishioners like yourselves, to not read portions of Scripture like this is either because you have divorced somebody and feel guilty or you've been victimized by divorce and are still struggling with that whole issue. Nobody is a winner in, in divorce. It, it is ugly. It is horrible. But that's not why the Pharisees and the religious leaders are asking Jesus about divorce. They're trying their best to entrap him, to say something contrary to the law or Roman law. Just get him in trouble any way they possibly can. These are the last days. I, I know that to be true. The last days is a broad period of time from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his next coming, which is yet future of us today. These are the last days, that period of time where God is at work through the power of his Holy Spirit and the church evangelizing the world, feeding the sheep, getting the message out. There's a lot going on and a lot yet to be done that we've been commissioned to do by the Spirit of God. My daughter Jennifer was alluding to that. Can we go out and, and just simply invite people to church? You may not feel that you have the gift of evangelism, but certainly anybody can take a little index card and, and offer it to people or stick it in their door or something else just to let them know that God loves them. There's a house of worship that is open to you that's right here in your neighborhood, and we just want to love on your kids and tell you and them about Jesus. These three topics really bring up the issue, have I really surrendered all? So as we go through this passage on divorce, I am not here to guilt trip you if you've been victimized by divorce. I'm not here to browbeat you with legalism if you have divorced someone else. That's not the purpose of this teaching at all. That wasn't their purpose in asking Jesus about it. It was sheer entrapment. But you have to admit, this is a real hot topic to, in today's society because it's so rampant. You've heard all of the statistics on it, but th sometimes they make you feel very uncomfortable if you have found yourself in this situation. In this scripture that we have before us this morning, Jesus tells us what the perfect 
will of his father was originally. Regardless of how marriage and divorce is practiced in American society today, what you really want to know is how's God feel about it? So I don't want you to see yourself as a victim or a guilt-laden person here that Pastor Jim is going to whip on today or rehash a dysfunctional past. No, 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 no. None of that. I just want you to make the commitment before I say a word out of Scripture. I surrender all. Give it to God. If you've been hurt and wounded, I surrender all. You just got to mean that today. You just got to give it to him. If you divorce somebody else and you knew it was outside the will of God, confess that as sin and surrender it all to the Lord. We've all been hurt. We've all been wounded. We've all been victimized or known people that were with this thing called divorce. We know it's not God's perfect will, and it, it leads to all sorts of acrimony in our relationships that's difficult sometimes to move past. You may have difficulty forgiving the person that divorced you or abandoned you or your children. These are the issues that you're going to have to surrender sooner or later. Otherwise, it will consume you from the inside out. God does not mean for you or I to walk in woundedness in this life. So when we sing that song, I surrender all, man, the last thing in the world I want you to do is singing useless words. If you're not going to surrender all, zip the lips, sit down, be quiet, because you're not. You don't want to be a hypocrite by continuing to mouth the words, hoping the people around you see you as the spiritual person that you would hope to be, but in fact are not. I surrender all. means give him the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just give it to him. Surrender him. He loves you so much. He wants to deliver you from the dysfunctionality of things that have wounded you deeply, whether it's divorce or the issue of children. And we'll touch on abortion in verse 13 and following another hot-button topic in today's society. The three things that are before us, divorce, children, and the love of money. And it touches all three of them do on this issue of surrender. Surrender to the Lord. Between his first and second coming, these three issues are going to be a constant, something to be confronted in our society. Rampant divorce today, tearing apart family and society, unwanted children, touches on abortion, the Pursuit of wealth is the third topic that we'll pick up with the rich young ruler to, to the point where there is an overwhelming obsession to, for materialistic things and entertainment and technology today. Are these things impinging on our society today? Yes. Are they leaving a, a dreadful mark? Yes. You can't communicate with your kids because they're on your, their phone. People tell me all the time, well, well, call me, call me on my phone. I don't have a cell phone. I don't want a cell phone. I'd rather talk to you face-to-face. -face. A little FaceTime. Because then I can hear inflection in your voice without trying to read between the lines. Are you mad, sad, hurt, depressed, wounded, or just having a bad day? You don't know what to make of texts. And texts have been the ruin of many a relationship. I, I don't want to be obsessed with technology. I don't want to be obsessed with the pursuit of personal wealth. We live in a land that exalts those things. And yet Paul said in writing the Philippian church, he said, I've learned the secret of being 
content in all circumstances. So in that third issue that we look at today, the issue of wealth, are you content with what you have? Or do you hunger and thirst in your flesh for more? Your flesh, not your spirit. Divorce. Let's look at what Jesus said in verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus then left that place, went into the region of Judea, and across the Jordan. He's in what the modern-day country of Jordan today, but he's hugging the river as the Jordan River flows south into the Dead Sea. And again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. I like that. You teach sheep. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God. You evangelize people that don't know the Lord. You feed and teach people that do. You know the Lord this morning. If there is any unbelievers here this morning, you'll have more than ample opportunity to surrender that to the Lord as well. That's what getting saved is. It's simply surrendering your life to God knowing that Jesus, His only begotten Son, died on the cross to pay for your sins. And all you have to do is accept Him and say, thank you for dying for my sins. I, I believe you're the Son of God. I know you're the Son of God. I, you died on the cross for me. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And I believe with all of my heart, you rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, save me. You pray a simple prayer like that, which took me all of 10 seconds. You enter into the family of God forever. But it's a, song, it's a song, it's a prayer of surrender. That's what you're saying. I surrender all, give you control of my life. It's a choice to put all of your faith and trust and hope and confidence in Him, asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. So if you're tired of making a mess of your life this morning, if any of these three issues have touched on your life, the issue of divorce, children, or wealth and riches in a sinful, fallen world, you want to consider surrendering that to the Lord this morning. You can do that right where you're seated. You can always pray with one of the elders that always gather after the service down here in front, the pastors and elders and deacons. It's an issue of surrender. So Jesus is teaching them. I, I love that because I'm a pastor teacher. It's a, the only st string on my banjo, and I'm going to play it for all, all it's worth. Some Pharisees came and tested him in verse 2. They tried him. They're testing his patience, his knowledge. They're looking for something to incriminate him. They're testing him. They have no interest in any of his answers, or they wouldn't have followed Jesus into Gentile territory. For the Pharisees to leave the comfort of Jerusalem to chase after Jesus, even when he's in Gentile territory, where these Pharisees then would become ceremonially unclean. They have no interest in uncleanness. That's just religion for them. They practice that. But they're going to hound Jesus all the way to the cross. They come to test him by saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why did they ask him that question? Because divorce was an issue in Roman and Jewish society as well as it is today. But there's more to the question than that. You remember John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod because John the Baptist had said, your marriage and your divorce of your former wife, all of that's illegal under Jewish law. You're in sin. And for that, he was beheaded. 
So maybe they can get Jesus to say something here that will put Herod on his bad list. And maybe Herod will do their dirty work and do away with Jesus. They did John the Baptist. And it appears from Scripture there is this distinct possibility that Jesus and John the Baptist were first cousins. They're hoping that Jesus says something stupid, clings to the law, and finds himself at the end of Herod's sword. So they're testing him. Can a guy get a divorce for any issue at all? Now, in the first century, there were two rabbis. One was a rabbi, Shammai, who said, well, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 says, if your wife does something unpleasing to you, then she can divorce you. But he interpreted that unpleasing to you as that she had committed adultery. She had slept with another man. And to Shammai the conservative, that was the only grounds for divorce biblically. But there was a second school of thought under Rabbi Hillel that you might call one the conservative and Hillel the liberal who said, yeah, you can get a divorce for any reason. He actually wrote, if she burns your eggs for breakfast, you can divorce her. Burn your eggs? That's the grounds for divorce? Well, what Hillel was saying, it, was, it doesn't matter what she does. If she's displeasing to you in any way at all, you don't like the way she cleans the, the carpet or bathes the dog or feeds the kids, just give her the boot, pick up another one, move on. <sighs> and so Jesus tests them. In verse 3, what did Moses command you? Now he's asking about commandments, not rabbinic opinion. Who cares what Shammai says? Who cares what Rabbi Hillel says? What does God say? What did Moses command you? We replied. And they said in verse 4, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and, and send her away. Hmm. Why did he write that? Why was divorce permitted? Because he knew in a sinful, fallen society such as spans the earth today, there are going to be people that take things into their own hands. There's going to be adultery committed. It would be difficult to deal with. And there was so much divorce then, even more today. In fact, in a recent interview, 75% of the teenagers in our country, uh, when asked, said uh, it is too easy to get a divorce in the United States. And of those from divorce situations, 74% of them said that their parents did not try hard enough. <coughs> wow. Most of those children blamed themselves. For their parents' divorce. And the suicide rate amongst children coming out of a divorce situation is four times higher than the national average. It's not just the people that are divorcing each other that get hurt. It's the little ones that don't know how to process that. Now, if that little one was you, you've got to give that hurt and woundedness to the Lord. I surrender all. Have you given him that? We all came from dysfunctional pasts. Many of you have divorced parents. It's not the perfect will of God, but it happened anyway. You felt victimized by that. You struggled to adjust to that new reality. Perhaps you were a pre-teenager or a teenager itself, and you just struggled with anger 
towards the parent that divorced the other one. And, and the rate of poverty amongst divorced families is so much higher than the national average. Kids coming from single-parent homes are far more likely to commit violent crime, be incarcerated, fall into gangs and drugs. Divorce doesn't just hurt the people involved. It is a real burden upon society. It taints lives forever. It hurts people. It wounds them. It is not the perfect will of God. It was permitted. And then Jesus would explain why in verse 5. Well, why did he allow a certificate of divorce to enter away? Well, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And you go, hearts were hard. Yeah, you were so hard-hearted that you decided to divorce your spouse. That's a hard heart because you know it's not the perfect will of God. So they committed such an offense against you, you took it in your own hand and decided, I'm going to divorce them. But the hard heart can also happen to the person that is the victim of that divorce. I'm not here to reopen old wounds, please. I'm, that's not why I'm here. I just want you to make sure that whether you've been divorced or have divorced, you give it to God. You give it to God. I don't ever want to do anything because I have a hard heart. I don't want to be divorced because I have a hard heart and I'm willing to change. I, I don't want anybody to divorce me. I don't want to divorce anybody else. I, I don't want any of us to have a hard heart. If you have a hard heart this morning towards those that have hurt you over this issue of divorce, give it to the Lord, please, this morning, or you'll carry that root of bitterness for you forever. It's a cancer that leaps you up from the inside. Give it to God. Give it to God. It's a hot-button topic that has affected all of us. The operative word in verse 4 is Moses permitted. It's not commanded in Scripture. It wasn't commanded. Well, if she commits adultery, uh, divorce, or it's not commanded that you have to. Have you thought about the possibility of reconciliation? What's the heart and mind of God? Isn't the God we serve a reconciling God? Hasn't He reconciled us sinners to Himself? Hasn't he reconciled us to each other in conflict resolution for the last 3,000, 2,000 years? So the operative word is that God permitted it because there are extenuating circumstances. I know in Colorado, being a, a no-fault divorce state, you can get a divorce for any reason you want to. We have followed the school of Hillel. We've gotten very liberal in our understanding of God's intentions, so we've made divorce very easy because divorce helps us to stay in our sin that we don't want to give up. I don't want to deal with my issue of lust, so it's easier for me to just dump my old wife and kids and, and pick up with the new one. I don't want to deal with my problem of lust. I just want to make it, I, I just want my way. I don't care what God's way is. Hard, hard. What's implied here in verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. What he, the point is, is that a tender-hearted, spirit-filled person could forgive the sin of adultery even and be reconciled and keep the family unit together. Would you agree that the family unit is under attack in America today? From a dozen different directions it is. Satan is out to destroy us. You destroy a family, you can destroy a society. You destroy a society, you can destroy a civilization. 
That's what Satan is out there doing today. But a hard-hearted person neither repents nor forgives. They, they cling to it. Divorce was never commanded but permitted by God because of the hardness of the offending party and the cruelty of, of what they have done. But the hardness can affect the offended party as well. And they're unable to perfectly forgive and, and restore a damaged relationship. The Pharisees had appealed to Deuteronomy 24 and, and verse 1 where divorce was given as an accommodation in a sinful fallen world. But it does not represent God's perfect ideal. And Jesus will, will show us that here in verse 6. But in the beginning, Jesus said, I love it when Jesus is asked these kind of questions, and he always goes back to the Word of God. It's almost like he's saying, regardless of how Shammai or Hillel feel about it, shouldn't we be asking how God feels about it? I mean, he wrote the book. If we're going to consult the book, does it make sense that we ought to, you know, see what God has to say about it? So that's what Jesus does beginning in verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, and here's the summary statement, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We know the perfect will of God. We often settle for less. I am most interested in what the perfect will of God is. I want you to refer back to verse 6 for just a second because it touches on another issue that I hear come up in the news all the time. Verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them what? Do you see trans in there somewhere? I don't either. Marriage is defined by Jesus Christ as a Union, a spiritual union between a biological male and a biological female. There is nothing in this text that allows homosexual marriage. Sorry. There is nothing in here that says you can change your gender anytime you want to. In fact, people say, well, I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl. Besides stating the obvious when you go to the bathroom, do you follow me? Just say I'm there. Okay, besides that, all you got to do is pull a little blood, and it's easy to say whether you're male or female. It's a genetic thing. Why? God made it that way. God made them male, and God made them female. There's nothing in between. Anything else, regardless of how society feels today, is settling for less than the perfect will of God. And you say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't care. What I really care about is whether you're obedient to God's Word or not. I am not interested in your personal opinion any more than I was of Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel. Those are irrelevant. Opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got one or two, and most of them stink. You can, you're entitled to your opinions. That does nothing. That does nothing in helping us interpret the Word of God. These are social issues, and society today lives in rejection of God's Word. That's a problem. You may disagree with me this morning, 
Here's the problem. It's not me you're disagreeing with. It's God. He wrote the book. Accept it or reject it, but there is no in between. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. There is no middle ground. Well, can't I believe in Jesus as Savior and continue my homosexual lifestyle? You cannot. Can I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and, and continue to decide on a daily basis whether I wear jeans or a dress? Or are you always the girl's room or the boy's room? God made them male and female. And it is the union between those two that is called marriage. The Defense of Marriage Act was passed by President Joe Biden back when he was a senator many years ago. He signed the Defense of Marriage Act and defining marriage as occurring between a biological male and a biological female. He appears to have changed his position since then, but can I tell you God has not? The Word of God stands forever while cultural morals shift to and fro all over the place. The firm anchor that we have is the Word of God. The Word of God. For this reason, verse 7, a man will leave his father and mother. This is the whole leave and cleave principle. And we've got a problem with that in America today too. Some of you need to cut the cord with mom and dad. If you're having a discussion at your dining room table, we spend way too much time at your parents' house, maybe you ought to revisit this leaving and cleaving passage here. I'm not saying having dinner with your parents is wrong. I love having my kids over for dinner. I just don't want it to become a tug-of-war between uh, me and in-laws on the other side. That's not of the Lord. On the other hand, I don't, want, I don't have any interest in telling my kids how to conduct their marriage. I figure if they want my opinion, they'll ask for it. But I'll never give them my opinion when I can give them the Word of God. And pray with them and love on them and help them through the difficulties that we all face, whether married or single. I just want Jesus to be Lord of all. I want to be surrendered in all of these things. So for this reason, verse 7, man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, leave and cleave. And the two will become one flesh. This is more a spiritual union than a physical one. The goal is to become one flesh with your spouse. How can I do that? Well, in part, you can do it by coming to church and worshiping together. You guys are doing it a great day. You're killing it. I love that. That's wonderful. Can you also help that spiritual union by possibly reading with your spouse? Or praying with your spouse or having family devotions perhaps around, around the table. There's a wide variety of ways to do this. Can we tune our radios in our car from our favorite pagan stations over to something that may be a little more spiritual edifying? Could we have Christian music playing in our house? Would that encourage a spiritual unity in that house? I think all of those things are things that can help. But I also see that Satan does everything he can to keep husbands and wives from praying together, from going to church together, reading their Bibles together. Satan is opposed to that. Don't give him a foothold willingly. If I can just say this for a second, 
not singling anybody out, but as a guy, I can speak to guys. Guys are the worst at this. I asked the wives, do you read and pray with your husband? Nope, he won't. Does that sound right to you, scripturally? But men tend to be very private. No, this is between me and Lord. You get out of here. You, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here and do that. There's a time and place for private devotions, to be sure. But it's only when you come together that spiritual unity is enhanced. So I would encourage you to think about, pray about reading your Bible together, having a devotional time together, spending a, a moment in prayer together. Men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, and wives are saying the leader left and he didn't come back. He goes to work and acts like I'm on my own, and there's no prayer between us. There's no, there's no sharing of God's Word between us. There's no praise and worship going on between us. There's no spiritual union, and yet that's what Jesus is talking about here, cleaving to one another, and the two becoming one flesh. So read and pray together. Invest in your marriage in spiritual ways, if at all possible. So they are no longer two, but one in verse 9 to cap it off. For therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. I won't do a wedding unless two people agree to do this thing God's way. Otherwise, that first year of marriage is like the confluence of two raging rivers. Like the Roaring Fork in the Colorado River outside of Aspen where they come together, there's this confluence of huge white water. It's a whitewater rafter's nightmare. It's so turbulent. But on down the stream, uh, it's wider and deeper than it ever was before. Well, that's marriage pictured in a nutshell. It's two people coming together. And then for that first year especially, there is that turbulence. There is that trying to get used to each other and sink our lives with each other get in the, in the same direction, but if you'll stick with that, with the help and prayers of your friends, the counsel of your pastors, the church attendants, a thousand other things that make you a spiritual person, that wide river where the two of you become one flesh is wider and deeper than it ever would have been separately. That's what one flesh is. That's God's perfect will for your marriage. Marriage tends to be a lustful honeymoon lasting about a year, and then two people looking to do their own thing thereafter. And that's what destroys life in America today, as about 45% of all marriages end in divorce in America as I speak. It's not the perfect will of God. I don't want it to happen to you. I love you too much. This is not something that says I'm commanding that you be married. If God's given you the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy, if you will, like Paul had as he wrote the definitive book on marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. That's great. Paul said it's easier serving the Lord with all of your heart when you're single. When you're single, you can sit down and have an eight-hour quiet time. You know? You may not have that freedom after you're married. Other things and, and uh, priorities get in the way. But the whole goal is one flesh. So when they were in the house again, verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And actually, they were kind of freaking out about this, you know. Uh, gee whiz. Uh, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, unless he has biblical grounds. But the goal here is reconciliation. Can, is there any way that we can do this God's way because we know what his perfect will is? 
Sometimes there is hope for reconciliation. Sometimes there is not. I understand that. The party that in this state, yeah, they can divorce you and you're the victim and can't do a thing in the world about it. You're free to remarry according to 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 12, and if he divorces, if she divorces her husband and marries another, uh, she commits adultery. So it's, it takes place on, on both parts. I was surprised to find that two-thirds of all divorces are initiated by women. That really surprised me. Two-thirds of all divorces in America today are initiated by, by the women in the relationship. But because of its destruction, no wonder God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. It ruins, it hurts, it wounds. Divorce is to be avoided if at all possible, but sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes the other person has made up their mind and run off with somebody else, and you're left. It's not always possible, reconciliation is, but we know the perfect heart and mind and will of God. Verse 9 sums it all up. And this second issue that's a bit of a hot-button issue today is this whole issue of children and how people think about them. Uh, unwanted children. I hear that there are over 14,000 unwanted children that live in and around the city dump in Mexico City. 14,000 because nobody wanted them. They're unwanted children. They were seen as a nuisance, an annoyance. So they're out there fending for themselves around the city, one of the world's largest cities, dumps, trying to eke out an existence. I understand that in the city of New Delhi, India alone, there are more than 50,000 children that live on the streets. Two-thirds of them are girls that are being victimized, victims of human trafficking. This ugliness is all around the world today because parents are not raising their children, staying with them. As they should, these poor children are abandoned and left to fend for themselves. Verse 13, children were being brought to Jesus to have him touch them. The Gospels tell us to pray for them and to lay hands on them. Uh, Matthew 19, um, for instance, touches on that. But the disciples rebuked them, you kids, get out of here. Maybe he'd heard the adage once, kids are to be seen but not heard. An old saying that came from 15th century England that children should shut up unless they're directly addressed or asked a question. They can't be kids. And that came from a clergyman. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was enraged. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A little child, childlike, not childish. There's a big difference. Childlike says, I place all of my faith and trust and hope and confidence in Jesus. I humbly ask him to be my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to him. He's my spiritual father. Even if I didn't have an earthly one, I did. He was, a, before he got saved, uh, was a very violent man. Alcohol did that to my father. When he found Jesus Christ, God gave him a brand new personality that was unbelievable and a, what a blessing. And Jesus, verse 16, took the children into his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. That's how Jesus re 
conceived little children. They're not unwanted urchins. They're not, they're not to be cast off. They are not unwanted as far as he is concerned. I know that some historically have used this section of scriptures to justify infant baptism. That's not, this section is not about baptism at all. That's not what Jesus is doing. There is no such thing as infant or child baptism in the Bible, anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. But adults that have come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior know what they're doing and know the consequences of their inaction as well as their action. Well, then you're old enough to get baptized, and that age could vary widely. I've talked to some 18-year-olds that had no idea of what they were doing. I've talked to five-year-old kids that had more faith than most adults I've seen. So baptismal candidates are simply those that understand that they have sinned against a holy God. Jesus paid the price for those sins. And there is a desire within them to publicly demonstrate the death and burial and resurrection of that person just as Jesus was and walk in newness of life. They've got to be able to comprehend all of those things. We uh, Phone calls once in a while, well, would you baptize my, my one-year-old? No. Will I dedicate your one-year-old to the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's laying hands on them. He's asking that His Heavenly Father would bless those children. I love it, but children being baptized here, there's no textual basis for, for seeing that in the text at all. Little children, although Luke has brephos, which means infants, little ones, were being brought by their moms, all the way up to kids that may have been 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Right after Jesus has talked about the sanctity of marriage, he now talks about the sanctity of, of children's. And their lives, it touches on child sanctity issues that America struggles with today. In that day and age, children were seen as a nuisance, an inconvenience. In some cultures, unwanted, disposable even. In the 15th century, that English clergyman came up with that phrase, children should be seen, not heard, deprecating the worth of children granted by God. Granted by God. Children were unwanted in adult situations. That's kind of what's going on here with the disciples. These 14,000 unwanted children in Mexico City, 50,000 in New Delhi, where seven out of ten are little girls. In America, we would rather abort unwanted children than change our sexually immoral lifestyle. That is a stain on America, that we would rather, rather slaughter the most innocent of all innocent in the name of personal inconvenience or so I can continue my sexually irresponsible lifestyle. Since Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, we have killed 65 million unwanted babies. It's larger than the population of many countries in the world today. We think nothing of it. Ten million of them were killed by planned parenthood. How can you be a parent if we just killed your child? 
What hypocrisy reigns in America today. Planned Parenthood, they're planning on exterminating your child. You, so you won't be a parent. So in what sense is it Planned Parenthood? This year, just so far this year, there's been 195,000 unwanted children aborted in America in the name of convenience. And you wonder how many doctors and lawyers and politicians or presidents or, or pastors or wonderful people were killed. We've done away with 65 million potential taxpayers. Maybe we wouldn't be $30 trillion in debt if we hadn't killed off our own. 1.6 billion abortions worldwide since 1980. No wonder what Jesus was angry when he saw that the children that, were, that he had given these parents were seen as an inconvenient annoyance. They're a gift from God. They're a gift from God. People say, well, what about instances of rape or incest? Those need to be taken on an individual basis, prayed about. Perhaps that child given up for adoption. There is an adoption waiting list in Colorado this morning that varies between 12 and 18 months. There's people standing in line for those babies. But people say, ah, I don't want to bother with that. I don't want to be pregnant for nine months. That's an inconvenience to me. I'd rather kill the infant. That's a stain on America that I, I know that God will deal with. Jesus was indignant. It's a strong word full of deep emotion. And I think that there is a day that parents who will not, who will keep their children from God are going to have to answer for that. Jesus said, be like a little child. Little children, I, what I love about my grandchildren most, they got no filter. You notice that? I mean, they just say what comes to their little brains. They just say, Papa, you look fat today. No filter, just no filter at all. They just tell it like it is. But within them is that cherubic love and faith and trust. You know, they draw me pictures all the time. They decorate my house. I'd rather have them than a Monet or a Picasso. You, they touch my heart. They tell me all the time. They love me. They hug me. They call me. There's nothing that touches my heart more than little children. Suppose they'd never been born. Suppose they'd never been given a shot at life. Suppose my daughter had decided in the name of convenience to let those little babies be aborted. I can't imagine life without my children. I can't imagine life without my grandchildren. Each one of them has grown into such a blessing for me. It brings tears to my eyes to think that something else could have happened if they'd have been aborted. I would have, there'd be a hole in my life the size of Texas. You've got to think about that. Life is more than your personal inconvenience. And we can never use it to justify the slaughter of the innocents. Can't do that. The person that's considering an abortion, lovingly, gently come alongside of them. Pray with them. Tell them, tell them there are alternatives to this. Please. Have them go to a, a place that can help them with counseling. Show them fetal development in there. Once I'll tell you what, once they see you know, a fetal scope put on a, a kid or have an ultrasound done, they go, that, that's, that's inside me? That life, that's life? It's got a heartbeat so early on, a movement early on? And you can so early on see fingers and toes. And, and <laughs> my little 
My little Jenny, who was up here before sharing with you, she's so precious to me. I, I don't know where, if she grows anymore. I don't know where she's going to put it because she's got a couple of months to go. She's going to get bigger in the houseboat. But I've seen, I've seen the pictures. I've seen the pictures. You know, I, I got, we got this thing on, on Kathy's cell phone about how big your child is. Well, your child now is about the size of a banana. You know, some you know, little banana, my little banana in her. Maybe we should call her banana. Let's name her banana. And Jenny says, no, we're not going to do that. You know, but you, you see the fingers and the toes and the eyes and the eyebrows developing and stuff like that. And you, you just, oh, what a marvel. What an incredible marvel life is. We can't do that. We can't make that happen in a test tube. We can't create life. God does it all the time. Started with Adam and Eve and every, every one of us. Aren't you glad your mom didn't have an abortion? You know, <laughs> my life would be so much poorer if we had bought into that. But there is a third and closing vignette as Jesus has this rich young ruler come to him. And it again is an issue of, have you surrendered to the Lord? Are you, do you realize He's the one who gave you the wealth that you possess? It's His. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As Jesus started on His way, verse 17, a man ran up to Him and fell on His knees before Jesus and said, Good teacher, He asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus <laughs> gives him a curious, why do you call me good? Jesus doesn't deny that there is goodness with him, in, but what he's re really calling to question is, young man, think about this. Who is really good but God? Let, let, let's start with that. O only God. So as this young man comes to Jesus, now he has to wrestle with the fact that Jesus just said, he's God. Okay, why do you call me good? If, in fact, you call me good, and I am, then I am the Son of God come to give His life for you. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. It kind of takes you back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, this is the outward form of the law, but the inward form is, has, has even more consequences where Jesus said, you say that you haven't committed murder, but have you ever hated somebody? Whoa, okay, now I'm guilty of breaking that commandment. Do not commit adultery, but have you ever looked at a person lustfully, Jesus asks in the Sermon on the Mount, then we're guilty of adultery, though we may not have physically slept with someone else. Do not steal, but have we ever had that thought in our heart? Boy, I'd like to have that, and I wouldn't mind stealing it if given half the opportunity. You look at shoplifting today, good grief. Well, we don't prosecute unless it's in excess of $1,000. So they have to lock up cans of spam? Did you ever think it would come down to that in this country, that thievery was so rampant? It's ridiculous, nor are our laws enforced. Do not give false testimony. Have you ever lied about anything? We've made them conveniently separated into white lies. What's the other color? I mean, what's the, is it a black lie? I mean, do you see that in Scripture anywhere? I just see either you tell the truth or it's a lie. But there's no in-between. But we in our society, in our conscience, would like to say, no, there's some white lies that are okay. In fact... 
they may be permissible. But only in this one context. Guys, listen up. If your wife asks you, honey, do I look fat in this dress? You better lie. For the sake of sanity, you, you better say, honey, don't lie. Maybe just say, you look beautiful in that dress. <laughs> Not in my case. <laughs> Your fault you didn't marry somebody better looking, dude. <laughs> we're married and where we're at is by divine design today. Because none of us get prettier as we get older. So the person you marry 50 years from now, going to look just like me. Sorry to give you the bad news, but deal with it. You know what I see when I look at my wife? I see the 30-year-old that I married. I don't see any wrinkles. I don't see anything. I, don't, I, I, see, I see my baby behind those eyes. And I fall in love with her all over again. I fall in love with her every time she grabs my hand. When we're just driving to Walmart for nothing special. I you need to see people through the eyes of God, not your sinful eyes of flesh. My wife is, a, is God's gift to me of unspeakable value. My children, my treasure. My grandchildren, oh, worth more to me than the stars in the sky. And that is because it's a heart that God's touched. I sang that song a long time ago. I surrender all. And I die daily to the flesh. And I let Jesus touch my heart all over again every day. And doing that, I find myself falling in love with my wife and my children and my grandchildren more and more with every passing day. That's what Jesus is talking about. This young man is married to his wealth. He arrogantly says in verse 20, oh, I've kept all of these laws. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. What's the real issue? This one thing you lack, Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And his face fell because he went away sad. He went away because he had great wealth. He loved his wealth more than he loved God, more than he was willing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The problem is this is what had kept him from the Lord. It's a hard thing to deal with. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the, God, the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Don't look for an excuse here. There is no gate in Jerusalem that if a camel gets down on its knees, it can go through with this pack on. That is a lie. It's a myth. That is not true. What Jesus was saying is this is it's, it's an impossible thing. Your money can get in the way of your relationship with God. Be cognizant of that. So the disciples were even more amazed, said to each other, who then can be saved? Those that don't let their money get in their way. Spiritually, don't trust in their wealth instead of trusting in God. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, say it with me, all things are possible with God. Highlight that, baby. Hi, that's God's promise to you this morning, whatever impossible situation you find. And Peter said to him, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers 
mothers, fathers, children, feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, God's, you give it all to God, He'll bless you here, He'll bless you later. It's savings, your savings account in heaven. But many who are first now will be last then, and there the last shall be first. Jesus had such a heart for this, this rich young ruler, as Luke calls him, But it teaches us not to let the things of this world keep us from that which is infinitely more important, eternal life and our relationship with Jesus. He wants us to give up whatever holds us back in full surrender to Him. These three vignettes yield to three more vignettes that we'll look at next week where we will see what the issues are of that day and age. Let's stand together and close in prayer. Pups, come on up. Heavenly Father, I commit myself once again into your hands along with my sisters and brothers here. Most of them surrendered to you a long time ago, and I think that's a wonderful thing. But some of us may struggle if divorce has impacted us presently or in the past, and it may even in the future. But I pray that you would cement the marriages of this church together with the glue of your word and your Holy Spirit and a shared and growing intimacy between husbands and wives that realize this one flesh thing is not a physical union, it is a spiritual one and must be invested in regularly. Father, I love and adore little children, but I, I know that they are cast off in many societies today and treated as an annoying inconvenience. And I pray that we would rethink that that we would see them as the precious gift that they are, that our riches or our desire for riches would not hamper our walk between us and you. We love you with all of our hearts. We need you. We seek your face and glorify your name, Father, this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.